0: Welcome back to the Rab Mountain People podcast with me, your host, Andy Cave. In this series, we delve into what it means to be bold. If you're climbing, hiking, or running in the mountains, there will always be an element of risk. But being bold is not necessarily just about physical risk, of course. At some point, we all encounter mental barriers. Whether it's a fear of falling, a fear of failure, or trying to adopt a mindset for optimum performance.
1: Simply to be the best we can be.
0: Here's a flavour of what's coming up.
1: When they go into the mountains, it's a simple place. It's a much simpler model. You you do the right thing and you stay alive. You do the wrong thing, you don't stay alive. Pretty binary, It's nice and simple. The emotions associated with it are intense and so they're easy for them to identify and so they're easy for them to relate to. Today we head over to North Wales to chat with Professor Lou Hardy. Lou
0: trained as a British mountain guide but went on to help set up the Institute for the Psychology of Elite Performance. He worked on research projects with the Royal Marines, England Cricket and countless Olympians. I wanted him to share with us what he's learned about the key elements that can help us realise our potential. We chat about self-belief, resilience, what can help us make good decisions under pressure and I ask him, has he got any takeaway tips for mortals, rock climbers wanting to progress in trad climbing, or young mountaineers wanting to go to the Alps for the first time? Why is it that some folk can seemingly handle risk better than others? Lou's basically got a massive brain. And in terms of questions, I chucked the kitchen sink at him. Lou, great to see you. It's been a while. Thank yeah. you,
1: yeah.
0: I was just we were just reflecting there, weren't we? That um, I think the first time we met was on snow lake in Pakistan uh, nice. in 1989 where we were trying the north face of the Ogre, which was very ambitious um, I think it's still not been climbed and basically a Himalayan brown bear came to our base camp and stole a load of food and it didn't just steal food it, it stole all the nice stuff so it left us with rice and dal and you just appeared you were there leading <laughs> an expedition, weren't you? Tell us a bit about that.
1: Yeah, we, I was leading an, ex- I was guiding actually, a Metropolitan Police Climbing Club expedition. We were doing the first ascent of Snow Lake Peak, which was at the other end of Snow Lake to where you were camped for the ogre. Uh, Snow Lake's quite big, it's like, I can't remember now, but it's about six or seven miles long. It's not a lake, of course, it's a glacier. Yeah. Um, and we, we'd, we'd seen that there were people and we had a day off so we skied along across the lake to see you and then we found out the story about the bear and of course we were very well equipped because of the nature of the expedition we had a lot of stuff and so yeah we, we I think we came back
0: and gave you some food. Yeah and then I think when mm-hmm. you left you said if you want more just head over Yeah. And so of course it was, I think it was a day there and back but it was worth it even for a packet of hobnob biscuits when <laughs> <laughs> we were absolutely <laughs> starving. Yeah. Brilliant, well thanks for uh, yeah, agreeing to chat about, I mean, I, I guess the gist of this is it, it, it's barriers in the mind in climbing. You, you know, to a, a non-climber might think, oh it's, it's, you know, it's the hard work and whatever, but so much of the challenge of climbing, which makes it great, it, it's, it's stuff that's going on in our mind, isn't it? Different kinds yeah, of fears. Absolutely. And you have an in, had an interesting journey, career if you like, because climber, mountain guide, and then you became a professor of psychology. And I just wondered, was there a spark that started that journey into psychology? Was there something?
1: There were a few things really. I, um, be, be, before I was a psychologist, it's a b- quite bizarre. I, I did have a slightly bizarre career. Uh, I, I did a um, degree in pure maths and philosophy and then uh, a master's degree and a PhD in pure maths, and I was a researcher in pure maths and a lecturer. And then when I was twenty six, I there were there were no in those days there were no jobs in pure maths, which is quite interesting because crying out from them nowadays. Yeah. Um, but when I was twenty six, I I gave up, and I went back to university and did a, a PGCE in physical education as it was then, and. Um, and then I started teaching in a school, and um, I was climbing. I was pl- I played a lot of sport um, at a reasonable level, but never not like international professional level. But you know, semi pro football, semi pro cricket, things like that. And um, and I, I taught in this school, and um, and it, when it, when you first start teaching in those days you taught if you taught PE you had to teach a second subject so I taught maths to as they were called in those days remedials um the, the kids who weren't very good at it and um and that was how I first got interested in psychology really and then I had a load of experiences as a climber myself when when I um I started climbing quite young. I was at thirteen. I suppose that's quite old nowadays. But in those days, I was brought up in a little pit village, Maltby, near near Sheffield. Yeah, and um, I was introduced to climbing when I was at school um, by by a a wonderful man called Nev Crowther. Um, He was a good climber, good alpinist, um, and eventually, I think he was um, became head of. Outdoor activities at Dunfermline College, but it, it, he introduced me, and um, I had an accident quite early on. Uh, I fell 800 foot down a snow gully, snow wow. and ice gully in the Lake District. Uh, I'd got a lot of burns and uh, was, you know, a bit smacked up, but not not hideous. And um, and I and I was. You know, I was probably a nervous climber, you know, and, uh, and I, I used to try, when I got frightened, I used to attack the route. But in those days, there wasn't so much gear as there is now. And, 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 it, and typically, when you do something like that, if you don't do it with control, you just you just literally climb past the gear and to get to the top, to get it over with. And I was sufficiently smart to realise I wasn't going to stay alive very long if I kept climbing like that. Right. And so I I, I thought, mm, I, I need to work out some stuff to do with this. I need to work out how to deal with it. And that was really that. Those two things together were what got me interested in psychology. And then I I got a job starting the sports science degree at Bangor University with another guy and um, I, and then at that point I then switched all of my research interest into psychology and then I'd spent the rest of the next 40 years in that school running that school and then I was the head of college and all sorts of things. So
0: it was like an amazing journey and then bringing all these different strands together Yes. you know, the maths and the it was really yeah. interesting I, 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 it's almost like it was made for you in a way well you couldn't all do the, it
1: nowadays of course you couldn't do it because of all the the the, the structure that's been imposed on careers so so you, you know I, I, at the end you know well not the end in the middle of my career I was one of the I was a very good sports psychologist like I did all the major keynotes in the world and stuff like that. I, I you know, I was recognized as very good but didn't have a degree in psychology. You know, I was it was all self-learned and um a you, you couldn't do that now. No. You you just you, you you can't do that. But I think my I think the fact that I did lots of different things guiding pure maths, psychology, it, 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 it gives you an advantage over people who've come what I call the straight route. Mm. Because you think about, you approach problems with a different mindset. Pure mass, for example, is extraordinarily sequential and logical, whereas psychology is very holistic. In guiding, you, in climbing, you have to plan. If you're doing an expedition, you have to have good planning skills. If you do if climbing, you have to have good planning skills but at the same time you have to live in that moment when you're actually doing it and be able to flow and that's not sequential that's holistic and mm. so it, it, that's it, really interesting it it's I gives you chat- different yeah. angles on things. Mm. I remember chatting to people about that it's almost
0: like a uh, you know when you, when you love that analogy I was talking you know being in the Himalayas where you're here and now dealing with this pitch in front of you yes how are supplies doing how's my friend doing yes but also planning yes and a bit like a pilot you're flying a plane now yep. yeah but we need to know what the weather's doing yeah. yeah absolutely yeah and you must have worked with in your role with a lot of different
1: worlds yeah yeah absolutely um, I, d- I did uh, research was my research was what fired me up a lot yeah um, the unknown yes yeah and uh, but I did quite a lot of consultancy work and, and I, I, I think I was thought of quite highly. I was an old school consultant, so a researcher practitioner, again, you don't have many of those nowadays, um, who, who actually was researching in the domain in which I was practicing. Um, so I've I, I worked with the military, I've worked in business, I worked a lot in sport, obviously. Um, I was the head psychologist for the British Olympic Association for 12 years. Um, I did a lot of work with the development squabs for ECB England Cricket. Um, A lot of work in the Army and the Marines. Just, you know, a lot of work in business and industry. Just a lot of diverse stuff.
0: It It must have been so rewarding having that academic rigour side but then stepping out into these different worlds, that real world thing.
1: Yes, when I was a pure mathematician, I had an ambition that I never achieved. <laughs> it was a hopelessly unrealistic ambition, I now see. <laughs> but I had an ambition that people like Newton, in the like Isaac Newton in the Middle Ages, you know, they'd observe a problem like the solar system, and then they'd devise a whole mathematical theory. That they then applied to solve the problem, and that was my ambition as a pure mathematician. I wanted to devise a, to identify a problem and then devise a whole stream of mathematics that solved the problem. Of course, in the, it was the twentieth century then. In the twentieth century, you couldn't do that. It's just too diverse. But but in in working in as a psychologist, as a researcher practitioner, you can sort of do that. You know, the, the, the work I did with clients influenced my thinking about research questions and about, it, it gave me hunches to then test, devise studies to test hypotheses. And obviously the theories that I developed gave me hypotheses to test with clients, you know. I wonder if this is what's going on it's called formulation in, in, in psychological terms. What were the main,
0: obviously your military, sport, obviously your background in climbing, Are there any common threads in terms of barriers to high performance that you could loosely put in buckets or bands? Or is it just too wide? What were the things that you would think that always arise, whether that was almost in business? Or
1: I think the, I think there is, if I'm... I, 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 I try and answer this question two ways okay I'll answer it directly first and then I'll talk about something else so in the work I did the individual work I did with clients because a lot of the stuff that I did was not just with individuals it was with organizations as well so for example in the army and the and, and the Marines we were we were trying to help them change the way they did training. So it was about organizational train change as much so as a higher
0: level of abstraction. Yes, yeah. Yeah.
1: But in the work I did with individuals, I, I always felt, and I think this is probably still true. I, I always felt that where there were major, where somebody had a major problem, a major obstacle to performance, there was usually they, there was either something wrong with their goals, or they didn't see all the choices. Right. There was usually at least one of those two things. Quite often, both of them together. But they—that's what caused the most. That was, in my experience, that most of the major problems you could identify something in one of those two areas that wasn't quite right.
0: So the probably yeah. In, in, in mountain terms, it's almost like the setting off on on the wrong mountain, yeah. and then on the journey to the mountain, the not seeing options.
1: Yes, or, or 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 having an incredibly rigid goal. That when you get to the mountain, I mean, you you talked about the Himalayas, you know, it, it, and there's that classic saying, isn't there? No no plan stands first contact with the enemy. Yeah you know, you you get to the Himalayas, when when we arrived at Snow Lake Peak, for example, we arrived and the plan was to put um, two camps in and uh, forgive me, this is old school of course, 89, you know, I'd be sneered at now for talking, camps, good lord, that's awful, (laughs) yeah, but to put two camps in and then there was another guide working with me, Arthur Collins, and we were going to ferry clients up the mountain through these two camps and get as many to the top as we could making multiple ascents that was our original plan we arrived there and on the afternoon we arrived it started snowing and it snowed every day for 14 days I know I would, I you plan. were there yeah so it just scuppered the plan you know I mean you then you have to rethink how the hell are we gonna do this you know mm-hmm. and in the end we did an alpine style ascent with four other policemen four other guys and we identified unclimbed peaks that were relatively straightforward. For the other guys were all skilled climbers that they could do independently. we basically we changed the plan completely. You didn't
0: bury your head in the sand.
1: Can't do that. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. they so the, the the you know, yes, I think obstacles to high performance that the goal, choices. The goal, the options. Are they Brilliant. seeing all the options? So in terms of I said I'd. I said I'd say something else. Oh, yeah, please. I want to say some. I want to look at that question a different way. Yeah. Rather than obstacles to high performance, why are some people high performers, and other people not? Yeah. And um, and I can say a lot more about this. Please. But but um, high performance in business is it, it, it isn't really high performance in sport, doing the hardest routes in the world. They're not really, from a psychological perspective, they're not really different. They're actually, they're all very, very similar. And the people who do those things are not necessarily the technically most competent or the most intelligent or the most skilled or whatever, or the most, you know, the most physical prowess that they're just not which <laughs> you go out there and look and yeah. you'll see they're just not but there's something that drives them. We did a very big study of Olympic athletes of serial gold medalists people who'd won gold medals at more than one Olympic Games. Yeah. And we compared them with what I'll call ordinary Olympic athletes, who'd been Olympic athletes. They were very good, they'd been Olympic athletes, yeah. but they'd never won a major medal at a major game, so a World Championships or an Olympics. And, um, and one of the things that differentiated between them, and there were a number of things, but one of the things that differentiated between them was that the 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 serial gold medalists had all experienced some sort of major negative life event um, usually when they were young and not just experienced a major negative life event because we know that there's a correlation between the experience of things like that and people becoming for example juvenile delinquents am I saying high achievers are not a lot different from juvenile delinquents yes I am actually saying just that because those people had experienced this negative major negative life event but in close proximity to that someone or something had presented itself as an opportunity or as it were lifted them out of the mire and they and they'd seized it they seized that moment. And that was what differentiates between them going down that road to high achievement and other people going down that road to very low achievement. Uh, So I think that was really very interesting. And and I think it makes sense to me. It makes sense at lots of levels. It makes sense at a, a psychological level because when you i'm I'm not talking now about conscious thinking i'm talking about unconscious stuff okay when you've experienced something like that at an unconscious level you do one of two things you either accept responsibility for it or you don't so either this was my fault or this wasn't my fault this was a random event if it's a random event there's nothing you can do about it so you just carry on with your life Whatever, and probably you carry on with your life with a lot of fear and a lot of um, anxiety and a sense of poor control because if this is a random thing, it can happen anytime and it can happen again. So it's, it's a threat to survival. It's or a what? threat to survival that's constantly there. You won't you won't have a healthy life. Yeah. If on the other hand you accept responsibility for it, even though it wasn't your fault, if you accept responsibility for it, then you feel that you have to do something to make sure that this never happens again. So if I do a concrete example, your parents got divorced, it was very acrimonious. Clearly it's not necessarily your fault, but if you accept responsibility for it, then you have a, 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 I'll say, unconscious thought process that goes something like this, if I'm really good, and I behave incredibly well, and I achieve really highly, this won't happen again, because it happened because I was bad, I didn't do enough, I wasn't good enough, I didn't make them happy, so, so, so that guilt. Shame. Shame, guilt, drives high achievement. And, um, and, and I hear now all the positive psychologists in the world a very sharp intake of breath as to go no no it's not like that at all no they're all happy they're all because a happy performer is a good performer no no i d- really don't believe that that's the case i believe that people who are high achievers are driven by something missing in their life that they're trying to compensate for and we have quite a bit of evidence that supports that and that olympic gold medalist study is one of those pieces of evidence yeah. and and it and it does this mean it's a bad life that they live does this mean that they're unhappy no not necessarily you know I, I i i i declare myself a high achiever of sorts you know and and if i had the choice to be you know, i could do you know i i can talk about what what was the what's the negative life event but there's it doesn't really make any difference it, it doesn't matter you know I've done some work on it I understand it I've got it in a, in in perspective as it were and um, and do I want to do any more I could do deep analytic analytical therapy for years and get rid of this driver do I want to do that no I like my life how it is yes I'm a bit nuts Yes, I'm a bit driven, I'm intense, I'm difficult to live with, but actually I quite like me how I am. I don't want to be cured. I like being this person. And I suspect that lots of people who are high achievers are like that. They enjoy being a high achiever, even though it's it's problematic for them. It's not necessarily, it's not all happy clappy, yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I actually think that's really quite interesting. Yeah, quite pertinent. Yeah. yeah, thanks for showing that.
0: Yeah, um, so you, I think you'd probably, rather than spending time doing deep analysis, you'd probably be wanting to skew some power, wouldn't you? Exactly.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it, and this leads it leads to quite an interesting thing in the context of climbing and boldness. Yeah, it leads to quite an interesting corollary. There's the pure mathematician in me. You see, because mm-hmm. pure mathematicians have theorems, and then the theorems have corollaries. This is like something that is a consequence of this theorem. Sure. Yeah. So an interesting corollary is, so what do you do about this in the context of climbing? Because of course, what climbers do is they set themselves the goal of climbing harder routes, hard, bold, dangerous. Reputation road. or number or whatever. Yeah, because yeah. that's the way to be, prove that you're good. Yeah. That's the way to prove that you, that's the way to prove to yourself in essence that you are indeed that person now, so that bad thing won't happen again, because I'm being a good boy, yeah? yeah so so you 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 go off to the Himalayas to try and do the north face of the yoga and you and you don't get up it, you know, yeah. or you do get up it, yeah. and when you come back, if you got up it, then for a certain period of time, everything's pretty good, yeah because you proved yourself and you don't need to do it again and and then of course as time sits by and I see you smiling because I know you'll know this is how it works as time goes by you just you just start something eating again you know eating away at you and you have to go back you know you're gonna to have to go and do something else you know you have to go and do something if you got up it you're gonna to have to go and do something that's harder because you, you need to prove it again feeding you know? the rat yeah exactly feeding the rat and and you go off and you do something harder and you spend your life doing this repeating harder and harder things until you die okay that's one one scenario Yeah. yeah or you you repeat that cycle but after you've repeated the cycle a few times you start to get a bit of a transfer effect to life and and that that need to prove yourself worthy becomes diminished becomes less and so you don't have to do stuff that's quite so hard now you still need to go off and do something every now and again but you don't need to go quite so often it doesn't need to be quite so desperate etc cetera, etc cetera. and you'd live a life that's like in balance but on a knife edge Yeah. Um, or, you come back and you repeat that cycle mm. and you get quite a generalized transfer effect to life and you no longer, f- you now feel worthy and you no longer feel the need to go and prove yourself. And so, you stop climbing. Because why would you climb if you didn't need to prove that? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think that's quite interesting and and I think, we can all identify people that we know were climbers yeah. who've done all of those journeys. You Absolutely. know, I used, to, I used to have one that was a little thing. I had to climb something harder every year on or about my birthday, a rock climb, right. technically, that was... Yeah. Well, clearly, this has a finite life, yeah. you know. And I managed it until I was 47. And then when I was 47, the last route I did was... And by your standards, this is very modest, but I wasn't a great climber. I was yeah. bold, but not yeah. great. I did great wall. I think I was there that day. Oh, you might have been. Yes, I think so I saw you. On you, weren't, you on, weren't you on Midsummer Night's Dream? Yeah. Yeah. six out to the side I'm pretty yeah. sure I don't know were you with Sandy or? I was with Sandy Britain yeah, yeah that's, that's right that's
0: the other time we met yes yeah, yeah, yeah. You can, you can. well what a great route though Great uh, Wall what a brilliant and route and what? for most people I think the other thing is that most people with lots of climbers out there they'll, they'll never climb Great Wall because it's, no. it's pretty you know
1: well top pitch is bold isn't it yeah Yeah.
0: yeah. so talk, thinking about that so there's life advances if you like and the obviously the body slows down yes chemical changes as well yes different kind of I don't know testosterone or different things, does that affect that drive in there? Of course
1: it does, it's got to, I mean, again, if I do this at a personal level, I I, I, have been, I mean, I'm 72 and I'm still intense, (laughs) but when I was 20-odd, I was just ridiculously intense, and I, I, you know, I, I, I don't know what my testosterone levels were, but I do know they must have been ridiculously high. Yeah, and it, it, you know, there's loads of studies that link testosterone with, um, with not, not it's, of course it correlates with high achievement, but with competitiveness, with people, you know, that intense motivational drive, there's loads of studies, and there's also loads of studies that show that testosterone diminishes as you get older. There's another strand of research that Tim Woodman and me were leading it. Um, And um, it's around this question. And and it's related to the other stuff, but not necessarily in a incredibly sequential way. They're sort of different views, if you like, slightly different views, but compatible. And, And that is that people who, who climb, uh, uh, and when I say people who climb, I mean people who climb at a relatively high level, as yeah. opposed to people who just climb like two or three times a year. I mean, yeah, people committed who climb one. who committed are committed climbers. climbers. Yeah, and when I t- relatively high level, I mean relatively high level for them, of course, because it depends on your own ability. But yeah. but people who are committed climbers. um I, I um, think this is not sport climbers this is like more mountaineering trad mountaineering yeah. bigger rangers greater yeah. rangers type climbers they 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 typically um, have two difficulties uh, or at least one of these two difficulties um, a difficulty identifying and describing and understanding their emotions and or a difficulty with their sense of control in the world yeah okay so and this relates to the self-efficacy piece but it's not quite the same okay, okay. but but a, a um, yeah they they the, the world is a stressful place for them that the the regular world yeah yeah the regular world is a stressful place for them and but when they go into the mountains that the the regular world's very complicated there's lots of stuff goes on about relationships about social norms about all, all sorts of things yeah, yeah. but wh- when they go into the mountains it's a simple place yeah it's a much simpler model you, you 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 do the right thing and you stay alive and you get up the route you do the wrong thing you don't stay alive you don't get pretty up binary it. it's pretty binary it's nice and simple the emotions associated with it are intense and so they're easy for them to identify and so they're easy for them to relate to they're a bit one-dimensional M- mostly it's fear <laughs> you know but yeah. but there are other emotions as well you know when you get to the top of something or you know the yeah. the elation and the, being close to nature. Being close to nature, but the 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 emotion, everything's a bit more raw and obvious.
0: A bit and even if you're in a team or a relationship. Again, they're quite simple. Yes, so, yeah, yeah. Because because you're in this route. bubble. Yeah.
1: You're in this bubble, so so it, it it it's a um it's a simpler model, and so they can experience identify. Understand, appreciate their emotions, and they, by dint of staying alive, get a sense of control over their world. And that's it's, the, it's those effects that transfer when they come back. And I said before, you know, you get a transfer effect alive. Yeah. So when they come back, life's not so stressful anymore, and it's not quite so complicated, and the emotions are not quite so. The, 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 the cloudiness of the emotions is not quite so important. Mountain yeah. therapy. Mountain therapy, exactly, yeah. And that's why you get that potential transfer effect. Um, and that's why, like all transfer effects, sometimes it lasts for a while, sometimes you don't get it, sometimes it lasts forever. And those are those three scenarios that i talked about yeah, before yeah. where you die you stay alive on the knife edge or, or or you or you're in inverted commas cured and go and sit in your armchair yeah yeah
0: and that's an interesting because we're in your study and looking at all these climbing books you're in your armchair we're going off tangent here but obviously lots of non-climbers love reading climbing books yeah. so living vicariously through exactly. that, those adventures and so maybe getting something from it without that's an interesting why there is so much lit, rich mountain literature
1: well and why there's so much rich mountain literature if the people who are writing it have difficulty um, understanding and explaining their emotions Actually, if you look at the rich mountain literature, you'll find very few emotions in most of it. Yeah. 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 It is quite interesting. The appearance of emotions in mountain literature is a relatively modern thing. Yeah. In the old days, you got you know like wimpers scrambles in the Alps. You know. Uh, you, well, even more recently, Ship, Shipton and Tillman. You know, you get. We I do believe we so forgot ourselves as to shake hands. You know, I mean, that's the extent of their emotions. Yeah, yeah. yeah so things are changing. Aren't they? Things have changed a lot. Yeah. Um, but I think that's still vulnerability. Yes, but it's still, you know, things have changed a lot. But the regular world, in inverted commas, has become even more complex, even more stressful, even more difficult to deal with. So the drivers still remain <clears throat> relevant. Yeah they just they, they shift up a gear yeah yeah
0: wonderful really really interesting in terms of you know I was going to ask you about so this could be anybody at whatever level realising your potential getting the best out of yourself so you've got this desire to get yes. better yes. at something let's <coughs> call it climbing um, and it could be of course trying to get better at trad climbing trying to get you know sort of thinking ooh I've done a bit in North Wales scrambling and I want to go to the Alps um, so, people that realise high potential—you know—is it do they? You know—is it—is it around mental toughness, this self-efficacy, being able to make good decisions under pressure? Those three things. Could we talk a little bit about those in any particular order? Yeah. Or can,
1: can, can, I, can I talk about one other thing first? Of course. Okay, because <laughs> because. Uh, because that you you the key phrase that you used for me was realize their potential. Yeah. Yeah. And realizing your potential for me, the primary driver, the primary influence on realizing your potential is not um, skill based. Right. It, I, I describe those as secondary. Right. I'd say the primary influence is motivational. Yeah. It, it's why. Why do you want to do this yeah. yeah that that's that's the key to everything yeah <clears throat> and um um exploring that and understanding for yourself why you want to do it yeah is i think really important yeah. and and usually when people explore that um <clears throat> They, they, they'll identify some event in their life that some aha moment, you know that, that if it's climbing, mm. that involves climbing. Some, you know, I mentioned earlier, I started climbing. The guy started me climbing Nev Crowther. What a wonderful man who, who did stuff with us. We were like I was thirteen year old, you know. He did stuff with us from school. He was a teacher. Um, you couldn't do it now. You know, I mean, he, he used to take us away for the weekend in his car. He'd get accused of being a pedo now. Yeah. Uh, just, yeah. you know, like, you just couldn't do it. But he he took us to the mountains. He took us climbing. He yeah. took us, you Amazing. know. We, we And we did stuff that, I, for me, was just gobsmacking, you know. And you were from a pit village. I, I was from a pit village, yeah. And, we, of course, we went to Stanage and climbed on Stanage and... You know and then he took us to the Lake District and, and he, he, he he it was I was with him when I fell down the down the snow and ice gully mm. and it, for years I always suspected my parents must have given him a really hard time about it and I didn't he he, he left and you know he went up to Dunfermline College I said he was mm. head up there and of outdoor ed and I bumped into him on on the Cairngorms years later when I was doing my guides training yeah and I said to him I said, "It's brilliant to see you." I don't know if you'll re- remember me. I, I was one of the kids you taught at school. He said, "Oh yeah, no, I remember you. I remember you completely." And I said, "I, I always thought my parents probably gave you a hard time over that accident. Yeah. I hope it wasn't too too hard a time." He said, "No, actually, they were wonderful. Yeah. They never gave me a hard time about it. He said, Can you imagine that
0: now?" Yeah, just. I just want just dropping Lou off I just want to say it's nothing to worry about he took an 800 foot fall yeah, yeah exactly yeah an 800 foot fall 800
1: foot fall and he'll be off school for a month but he'll be okay yeah <laughs> and so that was a you know what a wonderful but that's Duke of Edinburgh plus 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 yeah plus, exactly yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean so I, I suspect that people have some eye-opening experience motivationally yeah. and then and the, and the, again, there's reasonable evidence about this from other domains. And then, because they have this experience, it becomes like a dream. Wouldn't it be great if? Yeah, uh, and uh, and and then this is the key step because I think loads of people have that dream. Wouldn't it be great if? But don't do anything about it. Right. But the people who achieve their potential, they actually transform that dream into a goal the famous T Lawrence quote yes comes to mind yes and that dream you yeah,
0: dreaming in, in, in your, you know if it's an actual dream that's fine but it's people that dream in the daytime yes
1: exactly yeah and so so that and, and then it becomes a driver and then of course those people who achieve their potential they Somewhere they have that driver, they have that missing piece that drives them. You don't yeah. achieve it. if 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 there's no missing piece, why would you ever get out of bed? Why would you ever do anything? Yeah. And why would you do anything that was difficult? There wouldn't be any point. Mm. There's no point doing something that's difficult or that hurts or that there's risk associated with. Mm. I don't need to. I'm happy. Yeah. 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 So. I I, I think if my philosophical position is, there's always a driver, and that is my philosophical position, there is always a driver, then surely to God it makes sense to try and understand what the driver is. Yeah. And I'd say that's the first step. Yeah. And then all that other stuff. Yeah. I've already leaked into goals. Yeah. the driver generates goals and then of course there are poor goals and good goals and there are goals that are achievable and goals that are unachievable and goals that are broken down into sub goals and goals that you measure your progress against Uh, and uh, those are and this if this sounds a bit intense i think achieving your potential is a bit intense you know If you don't break it down into some... If there isn't some sort of set of goals that you achieve on the way... Yeah, step goals. Step goals. Then that's what... That's the biggest determinant of self-efficacy. So the the very... what self-efficacy is. Yes. So self-efficacy is situationally specific confidence in a sense. Okay, so it's about... It's about a belief in your ability to do what's required to cope with or achieve in a particular situation. So it's not generalized. So you might have very high self-efficacy about rock climbing, for example, but very low self-efficacy about ice skating. Yeah. You, you, you might have very high self-efficacy can you
0: transfer for somebody that gets confidence through climbing that might possibly with that self-confidence then you, help them let's say in an academic sense or you, a
1: work you, sense you, you can but there has to be some, some there has to be some common I was trying to avoid a jargon word schematic similarities so okay. so in our brains how we do different things we have schema for doing different things and the transfer effect will be greater to the extent that the schema of commonality and um, if i go back to that climbing uh, you know expedition sort of transfer effect um, there has to be some similarity between the way real regular life is stored in your brain and those expedition experiences are stored in your brain and if I do an even wilder one that you go to those it used to be trendy for businesses to send people on outward bound experiences for example I mean this is a very long time ago Rock of course or- yeah yeah and some people had come back and um, and this experience would have transformed them it was I, I hypothesise fairly rare that it completely transformed them, but it had, had a transformatory effect. Yeah. you know, and lots of other people came back, and yes, the you know they had a they had an afterglow for a day or two, but they didn't really it didn't change it how how they behaved. Yeah. It didn't change anything, and and that's because that there wasn't sufficient link in the in the schema the way that their world at work was and the way that their world in in that in that outdoor activities experience. Could a a link
0: have been made? I think
1: the link can often be made more explicit.
0: more explicit with the practitioners. Yes
1: and nowadays of course people don't go, I don't, I'm not I'm not dissing outward bound at all but but businesses send people on management, if they send them on management training it isn't typically just an outdoor experience, there's some uh, Briefing, debriefing, uh, exploration, discussion, exploration. Looking at the the different lenses. Uh, Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That 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 helps them to see how this uh, these these two worlds have some similarities. Yeah. And I'd go a bit further and say that those experiences would work even better if you had alongside them. ongoing coaching for the people who'd been on the training course Not when they came back it wasn't one off you had some like steps yes yeah exactly yeah yeah,
0: yeah. yeah really important mental toughness I've yes written down what i know you've done a lot of work on that talk a little bit about that in the different worlds and maybe yeah. climbing and yeah is it something that can be trained and enhanced
1: this is a philosophical position all things can be trained and enhanced okay there you go that's my philosophical position but um my if i'm really honest my nature nurture position is um there's no evidence that i've seen anywhere in in any research that accounts for more than 50% of the variance in any variable from a nature perspective. And there's no study that accounts for more than 50% of the variance from a nurture perspective. So therefore, let's say it's 50-50, yeah? Okay, okay. And then that'd be reasonable. Okay. And so I'd say that you know, mental toughness, resilience, things like that, yes, there will be some genetic component to them and there's also some trainability component to them and probably those two components are worth about 50% each so you depending on your view of life there's not much to be gained by training or there's a hell of a lot to be gained by yeah. training you mm-hmm. know um, but what are some of the drivers what does it look like So mental toughness is it quite it, it, it's been a slightly abused word in the psychological say, what is it in literature. Your, yeah, the yeah. way you use it. For for me, you you can't talk about the literature widely talks about mental toughness as though it's a way of thinking. It's something uh, you, you you think in a certain way. You you. It's a cognitive behaviour, mm-hmm. okay. But for me. It's not really mental toughness if there isn't some real behavior that accompanies that thinking. You can have beautiful thinking and perform really badly and you're not mentally tough in my mind if you do that. Yeah, you, you, The primary thing for me is about the behavior. Somebody's mentally tough if they can produce, um, consistently produce high level behavior in whatever domain it's in under pressure under lots of different stressful circumstances then I'd say that's mental they're mentally tough yeah Yeah. I think the literature went astray a little bit in that it started to pursue a reasonable question is to ask so are there some ways of thinking that help that more than others and that's a reasonable question are there some ways some cognitions that are more helpful for this than others that's a reasonable question but then the the literature got hooked on just looking at the cognitions independently of the behaviour and that's not reasonable in my mind yeah so the stuff that we did we always had behaviour was the primary measure that we were interested in could this if you could this person walk the talk could they do it when the wheels fell off, when everybody else had given up, could they still do it? That was really. That's what the. That's what we were in interested sport, in. Sport in military. Yeah, in whatever. Yeah, yeah, wherever. Yeah, and we did find some quite interesting things that are slightly, slightly counterintuitive. Yeah. Okay. I. I this is a little aside. Yeah. As a little aside, what's my contribution to the psychological research literature? Okay, I spent 40 odd years working in it. What did I contribute? I think I contributed two things. I think I contributed the, the, the interaction. <laughs> I don't mean this literally. Of course, the psychological literature knew about interactions between different variables, but primarily, that it focused on main effects, it focused on the effect of one variable on another and didn't look at the way they interact. And all the stuff that I've done looks at complex interactions. And then the second piece is the counterintuitive, the wrong, the the good is bad, the bad is good, the wrong is right, the right is wrong. Those counterintuitive things and we we did a big study on mental toughness in cricket, high level cricketers, <laughs> um, and what we found was that, and this was the majority of this work was done on batsmen. Okay. Okay, because bowling may, is a different task. Okay. Sure. Yeah. I'm not saying it doesn't apply. I'm sure. just saying this was what the focus was on, and. And, and we have two different systems in our brains. We, we have lots of different systems in our brains, but we have two very old systems, a reward system and a punishment system, and they're in the the old brain. So the reptiles have this, you know, anything that has a brain has these two systems, whereas reptiles don't have a cortex with all the thought processes and stuff like that. So. These two systems, um, in the old days of psychology, these two systems were what determined behaviour. In the, in our cognitive world, these two systems are largely, I think, wrongly ignored because the focus has shift towards, shifted towards cognition yeah. and now what we think determines what we do. But these two systems are really very powerful. and. And we expected, when we did this research, that people who were mentally tough would have a more dominant reward system than the punishment system. So they'd be high in reward sensitivity and relatively low in punishment sensitivity. And these two systems are independent, so they can vary independently. (coughs) And why did we think that? Because we thought that people who are reward sensitive would see the potential for gain in a stressful circumstance more easily than someone who was low in reward sensitivity and people who were high in punishment sensitivity would see the potential for loss in a stressful circumstance, glass half full, glass half empty. So that's what we thought. What we found was the exact opposite. People who, and we found this consistently, we repeated it three times the study because we didn't believe it to start right. with. But the batsmen who were most mentally tough were low in pu- reward sensitivity and high in punishment sensitivity. So there was some fear there. Exactly, yeah. And um, so, why was that? Well, eventually we did the study that then said, okay, so why is that? And what it was was that because they were high in punishment sensitivity, they they picked threat up earlier than people who weren't. And so because they picked the threat up early, they had more time to develop a strategy to implement a strategy to to do something to counter it, okay And this is both at a macro and a micro level so, the big match, that's a month away, they had more time to prepare for it because they saw the threat earlier. The ball that the fast bowlers bowling, they had more time to implement their whatever tactic they were using strategy, batting yeah. strategy they were using batting wise. They had more time because they picked the threat up sooner. And um, we've generalised that finding to several different other different domains so i'm not saying that's the case in all domains but it says to me that fear punishment sensitivity threat sensitivity fear anxiety the things that go with it aren't inherently bad they're they're actually they're actually potentially the strength yeah and they're the strength because there's a very classic old study um, by Baumeister, Roy Baumeister, that found similar things with self-consciousness. And and basically, it's an advantage because if you're always anxious, then when there's a bit more anxiety, it's not really a lot different, is it? Yeah. They get used to being anxious and fearful. They get used to dealing with it and so they're better able to deal with it. And so they're, they're, they're more mentally tough. So it, it's about how you interpret and work with the anxiety, that's what I'd say. Mm. And I, I often encouraged and still would encourage people who, are, who get anxious about performance, about whatever performance it is, I'd say just just go with it, get anxious early, yeah, be very anxious early, and get used to being anxious, just deal with it, yeah, yeah. and then, when the event comes, it's not a massive rush for them. they're already just even without developing any fancy skills. Mm they're already on the case. You could apply that to, I'm just thinking of any performance anxiety if you're course, a musician or yep. e- exams are the big one yep. at school aren't you? Yeah anything 16. anything and anywhere.
0: Yeah. yeah really interesting. Yeah
1: so so I think that's quite an interesting piece about mental toughness that's counterintuitive you see. Yeah
0: no really interesting <laughs> so, and you could apply that to you know if you like a, a climber yep. she or he on yeah. their trad climbing journey know little steps yes you, know, you don't. you don't want to take an 800 fall no nope. nope. but you've got to in some sense keep putting yourself yeah. out there. I,
1: exactly and I'd say you know then then if we go into the sort of the more technical skill development side of that if I just stick with that yeah. on climbing for a minute so years and years ago at Outward Bound as it happened at Outward Bound Estale Pete Willens and I devised a course legendary trad climber yeah legendary absolute legendary strategy we devised a course to help people lead better Mm. to help Mm. aspiring leaders lead better and this was a long time ago 80s okay and it was a very brave move by the director of outward bound estale bob barton from barnsley yes that's right um and who himself is a guide of course yeah and um We made the central piece of this course. Um, We we agreed that the biggest obstacle to people climbing, leading harder on trad routes was fear of falling off. Mm -hmm. And so we devised a course that was about desensitizing them to fear of falling off. So they wouldn't be so afraid of falling off. And the only way to do that course, course is to have people fall off structured learning in falling off yeah. yeah and that was what we did we did a week of falling off different things it was absolutely brilliant course it really was it worked incredibly Amazing. well and we, we started we we started on a high ropes course and um, where the the um, they're to dive off this platform and and First of all they dived and they caught a bar, you know, that like was, a trapeze or not? Yeah, like a trapeze. And they were on a safety rope and they caught the trapeze and they swung a bit and then they dropped off onto onto a rope, onto a right, slackish yeah. rope. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, and then and then they had to do they had to dive off underneath the trapeze. Yeah. So they had to dive off the platform onto the slack rope and take the fall. This was the key moment in this course and i was demoing this on 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 the day and um and i dived and i dived a bit high and so i was supposed to go just underneath the 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 trapeze yeah. and i didn't i hit it with my hands and instinctively of course i grabbed it yeah and it was only a fraction of a second i grabbed it for a fraction of a second and then i let go realizing what i'd done but i'd, I'd done it and I, I said "Oh, i was really annoyed with myself i said i'm really really sorry oh they were supposed to slap it that's right slap it but i didn't slap it i grabbed it i said i'm really sorry i'll do it again so i went back up and i dived underneath it so i couldn't slap it so i was like <laughs> committed <laughs> yeah committed and then the few days later we went to a crag around the corner um, and we were doing it en route and I was on a E1 I'd set up this E1 with some runners so they'd lead up the runners and then they had to jump off from above the top runner yeah and Pete had set one up around the corner and um, the E7 version yeah, exactly well that's exactly what it was his was on a hard VS and mine was on an E1 but mine was I got above the runner, and the runner was only just below my feet, you know, yeah. like a f- few feet below my yeah. feet. But you got a bit of slack Bigger out. Big a big deal, though, its it It's way. still a big yeah. deal to yeah. jump off, you know. Anyway, <laughs> I was holding on like this, and I was, like, I was having a proper dip there, you know. I was like, oh, "Fucking hell, fucking, hell. I really don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do." This. And then and, you- and I jumped off like so ah! like that, and jumped off and. Yeah guy held me on the rope yep. and then he lowered me down to the floor and we were swapping over That's then he was going to go yeah. up and do the same. But as we were in the middle of swapping over there was this blood curdling scream from round the corner. We brushed round the corner thinking there must have been a terrible accident and there was Pete Willens and his b was a PhD student of mine, Dave Markland, halfway up the crag level with one another Pete had taken an enormous screamer that he'd leapt off and dragged Dish Markland halfway up the crag. So they were like facing one another like they're still holding the was rope. Was it the beer they were screaming then? It was I think it was both of them. Right. That was why we'd heard two. Right. Yeah. Poor. Anyway. You know, fear of falling off. The biggest obstacle and now of course people at Climbing Walls do quite a lot of work on this. They do. You know. Absolutely. It's yeah. common and I, I think that's really I think it's really good stuff just desensitisation. Yeah. to and fall And if you're you know.
0: a trad climber or a mountain guy like you're spending your whole life not falling off. Yes So, of so when I go sports climbing let's say where it's bolted yes and it's overhanging I know I'm not going to hit anything but
1: each season I have to
0: go through that thing I'm not naturally good uh, at I jumping am, off. I am Letting exactly
1: you know. the same yeah. exactly the same and I think it is part of that trad it, 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 it's like you know I mean when I started climbing uh, I'm even older than you by some margin when I started climbing, there weren't any nuts you know you had you had a couple of slings uh, and and that was it and you really didn't off. want to fall off, you know yeah. um, and that was drummed into you, I think for, mm-hmm. whereas it, it, it is, that is a, it's a uh, there is some you know sport climbing is gymnastics. It's b- when you see somebody who's good at it, it's beautiful to watch. It's yeah. unbelievably impressive. Yeah. the the technical the technicality of it, but it is gymnastics. Yeah. Whereas trad climbing, to watch somebody do something really impressive, trad climbing, some of the best trad climbers, they're ugly to watch climbing. They're not yeah. beautiful at yeah. all.
0: And it's quite slow. Yeah. And there's the fear. Yeah. I guess maybe in that sport climbing, or I'm thinking. Co- the level now in sort of international competitions bouldering there it's it's the fear of failure probably, exactly
1: side, yeah 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 yeah. yeah no, it, it is it is just that it's it's that it's fear of failure is not, not in
0: terms of goal setting because I would have seen it over the years I've seen people who think oh, great potential either they haven't got that driver psychology mm. we're talking about or they're just happy climbing well within their comfort zone or there could be fear of failure going on so in terms of goal setting like i had an ambitious sport climbing goal so a few years ago and i just thought yeah i'm going to try something really really hard for me i'm probably not going to do it yeah and to begin with of course it was quite relaxed but then as i started doing all right on it then there's that fear of failure yes but i see a lot of people who it's not right or wrong but they they would never set like a totally crazy goal like that so this is not a dangerous goal. this is like a, yeah. some sort of performance goal. That's
1: interesting, isn't it? Yes, it is. And excuse me a second. it is interesting and and there's a goals are really important. I, I started this with the self-efficacy, very well established research that the biggest contributor to self-efficacy which is that belief that you can cope with this. The biggest contributor is previous experience of success and failure. And that's why having lots of goals, step goals is really good because each goal is a success and then the next one's a bit harder and another success and another success. And a... So by the time you get to the end point, you've had lots of success mm. and you feel much more able to cope. And then if you are anxious, you're much more likely to be able to use that anxiety in a positive way. Some people can jump that. Some some people, if you, some people jump it, but well, there are individual differences in how people progress. So, let's suppose that one person, every time they achieve a goal like that. They get a step change in their self-efficacy of one. So they start at zero. Imagine going through the climbing grades type yeah, of thing. Exactly. And by the time they've they've gone they get to goal number ten, they're at ten. But imagine that their loss rate for failure is five. So that you you never your loss rate is rarely the same as your gain rate. So it, it takes ten successes to get to ten and then one failure, you back down to five. So it's almost like beans in the,
0: in the pot. Yeah. And some people deal with failure in a different way so they can lose all the beans. Someone else might cling like, on to half of them. Exactly. That type of thinking. Exactly,
1: exactly. And, and so, so there are individual differences. Some people will, will, you know, they might need to get to level 10 of self-efficacy, they might need 100 successes, not 10. Yeah. Um, they might lose all of them for one failure. Somebody else might only lose one of them for one failure. Fascinating. So, so those individual differences about knowing how you are that determines your game plan, as it were, about might, the goal setting.
0: You might think, "Hold on a minute! I put myself out there. I'm going to lose
1: all my." You, 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 might, but I suspect that you, in, in describing what you described, what, what, you, what you've done is you've turned it on its head. And you've said, well, actually, um, I'm going to try this ridiculously difficult thing because I don't have any expectations. I just I see what it's like. Expectations, uh, they're I, huge, aren't they? Yes, they're huge.
0: Expectations on yourself. Expectations, thinking about what do others expect?
1: Absolutely, because every expectation is a potential success or failure. So if you if you set off on something that's really hard, thinking. You know, well, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna have a go at it and see what it's like. it would be a learning experience for me. Doesn't matter whether I get up it's or the not. Growth mindset thing. That's fine. Yeah. yeah, and then so that then you you're not creating pressure for yourself. Yeah. And and you might well find, you know, you know, I, I made half of those moves much easier than I thought I would. Yeah. And then that influences your self-efficacy for the future yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 for other people that wouldn't work no. it, it, for somebody else they, they might just no no I can't do that, that that's interesting uh, it's too always, big a jump
0: I always find that you know climbing you've been climbing for a year I'll be next year's 40 years for me so but each season if I go through the gears getting confidence through the grades even though yes. I've been here 40 years it's going to help me that season if I try and do a shortcut I think well at the back end of last season I was climbing X yes so I'll start at that and never have a good season and it's yes. something about just confidence of movement
1: yeah yeah you know yeah.
0: of sort of getting relaxed you know even how you hang a hold when you're
1: climbing is vital yes. isn't it you, yes you know, of course the course you gripping is. and yeah. all that kind of thing
0: yeah yeah
1: and it I, you know it, whatever you're doing to expect to have a gap in doing it and stay at the same place is in my opinion an unreasonable expectation some people can do it but it's, it's for most people it's not a reasonable expectation i think you have to think no oh, i need to go back a bit and yeah i need to i need to just relearn a little bit you know
0: just and i guess having that wider view of we've talked a lot about performance here but as, as climbers you and I, I think share that thing of it's just great to be out and there's history so sometimes yes. you go out and do a route and it's it's not maybe super hard but it's a classic
1: yeah. yeah being able to take yeah.
0: pleasure from that is it's healthy isn't it? Of course
1: it is I mean I, I, you know I, I say this for the podcast I, I'm 72 I have two metal hips and two metal knees. And impressed with Claire- the flexibility on your knees. Yeah, they're brilliant. Yeah. But clearly I don't climb at the standard that I used to climb. Well you've right. got some
0: ambitions you were telling me but,
1: about. But yeah, there's things I like to do, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sail boat the, where? Yeah, sail a boat to Arctic Norway and go ski touring on the islands there. I I, I like reading old classic mountaineering and climbing books yeah. and this, and it, so now I I redo classic routes that they did brilliant you know and I, and it just because I, I never did them when i was you know when when you're young and you're going up through the grades you go up quite quickly don't you mm. and you miss a load of easy grades yeah. but or, or <clears throat> you know you miss a load of easy routes because they're too easy you know,
0: and so much history, isn't there? I mean, yeah. I'm, lo- I'm looking out your window. There, I can't quite see clobby, It's just around the just corner. around the corner. But there's a lot of history there.
1: Loads of history and loads of classics to do, like that. That I didn't do on the way up, so I can do them on the way down. And goals are what we we you know goals are what keep us alive. Goals yeah. are goals are what make us live, yeah. as opposed to just exist. Yeah. I think they are really. And when I do goals, I'm not talking about numbers. Uh, you know it's a journey isn't it's it? a journey Goal, we, goals are much more quality for me than numbers yeah. we have goals about how we want to live our lives we have goals about the sort of relationship we want to have with our partners we, we have goals about how we'd like our kids to behave we have goals about all sorts of yeah. things and they're, they're you know they're really they're important drivers they're massive drivers yeah
0: Yeah. I, I wanted to ask you um, about yeah I guess the real short answer why we climb I guess we've already covered that haven't we really didn't we cover that at the beginning I think you know do you have a really short because you know when people I get asked three questions if I go off and do a sort of motivational talk or something to (coughs) non-climbers. one is have you climbed Everest you know sorry how do you go for a poo on a mountain is the other one and then they always want to know it's the journalist question why you climb and there's all sorts of things out there and and, I know can't remember one climber saying, "Well, you know, it's um, it's just a sort of primeval thing, and um, almost like you know, the journey from Neanderthal to here, yeah. the hunter gatherer type mentality." <coughs> yeah. And climbing's a bit like that. It's it's sort of going out and doing what maybe we're supposed to do. Do you have like a smart ass professor of psychology type? You know, in an after <coughs> dinner speech, or if somebody asked you, a non climber, what would you say if you only had <laughs> an elevator pitch type?
1: if if I, if I answer this about committed climbers yeah as opposed to <coughs> what you might call recreational climbers yeah, people yeah. who are occasional climbers yeah. yeah committed climbers i i you know i don't have the definitive smart answer no. but i have a I i have a, a half decent answer i think there are a number of components to it and these components don't necessarily differentiate climbing from everything but but they differentiate it from a lot of things so one there's something missing in this person you know i talked earlier about you know uh, some negative life event yeah or 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 or, you know a, a lack of an inability to identify and describe your emotions or a lack of a sense of control over the life you know your life there's something missing okay because all committed climbers are in essence high achievers at their given level yeah that's what they're doing they're going out Mm -hmm. and achieving and there's something missing that drives that then there has to be something about nature and about that one the simplicity of nature but forgive me for being an old romantic but there has to be something about the beauty of nature it's beautiful being in the mountains it's just lovely you know now that doesn't differentiate it from for example sailing it doesn't differentiate between expeditionary mountaineering say and sailing across oceans and I sort of go yeah I think that's probably just a bit of chance about what became available to you and that's why lots of old climbers become sailors, yeah there's loads of guides who sail yeah you know, when they when the when the body starts to fall apart yeah. because you get the same experience sailing and <clears throat> it's just in another environment yeah so i can't I can't get it down to climbing yeah without including sailing sure or. Other things natural. I mean, another. What would be another natural one? Be a spaceman. Yeah. I bet that's the same. Yeah. Yeah. it. That last bit is about random opportunity. Yeah. But the key bits are all committed climbers are in essence high achievers. Yeah. They're driven. Something's missing that drives it. Yeah. And um, and they shouldn't view that as a negative thing. Yeah. They should view that thing that's missing as a gift, in yeah. my opinion, because yeah. look at the things that we do, you know, yeah. look at the incredible places that we go to um, and the journeys that we have. And, and the yes, friend, the friends you make. And the friends that other, you make.
0: I mean, there's, it's a pretty diverse group of people, it, isn't it, it? It is. Fascinating people. And
1: you, and you look at, and somebody else out there would go, yeah, but look at the state of your body. You know I had two lots of major back surgery four joints replaced you know and i'm not unusual i i, I i'm the norm mm-hmm. in in that in that population and and they go yeah but look at the stuff that i did with this body i i wouldn't change that mm-hmm. i would not want to be cured i i really wouldn't i wouldn't change that for the for anything yeah but, it's yeah. just it's a fantastic a romantic thing, I think. Climbing. You feel lucky that as I a
0: thirteen-year-old, 13 that <clears throat> teacher introduced oh, you.
1: unspeakably privileged. Yeah. What? Yeah.
0: What might have happened if you'd have not discovered it? I,
1: I, I would have been a bad lad. I'm pretty certain. And I'd have been a very good bad lad because I'm quite clever. So, and I'd probably have been. I'd done some. I'd probably have done some very. I'd been a high-achieving bad boy. Yeah. Yes, I, I, I'm eternally <laughs> grateful. <laughs> Brilliant.
0: Lou, it's been awesome to chat. Really, thanks for taking the time. And
1: um, I enjoyed it. And, pause
0: uh, there. and All the best with your next adventure you up in the... Thank you.
1: I'm, I'll get there. The boat's nearly ready. <laughs> Fantastic. All right, yeah. thanks
0: a lot. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I've been your host, Andy Cave, and you've been listening to the Rab Mountain People podcast. To keep up to date and to hear more interviews like this, don't forget to subscribe. I look forward to bringing you more stories and interviews very soon.